Father, as we approach you in your word and as we seek to behold Christ, I pray that you would give us what only you can give. Open eyes, eyes that see and truly see. Open ears that hear and hear with the desire to obey. Hearts that are fertile soil for the fruit of the gospel to grow in. Lord, we come blind, we come deaf, and we come hardened apart from the grace of Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you would extend that grace now. Thank you for the work of your spirit in bringing your word to bear on us as your people. I pray that you would do what you intend to do. We are confident, Lord, that your word does not return void, but accomplishes every one of your purposes. And so would you help us now as we read, as we discuss your word together, would you help us to hear and obey? We pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Before we read the text this morning, I want to help us think about how we ought to hear the text. In World War II, Germany invaded much of Western Europe. They did it through a blitzkrieg, a massive assault of tanks across open land. It was so quick, countries like Poland that were taken over didn't even know what hit them. In the course of this, Germany invaded and reigned over occupied territory in countries like Poland and France and others in Europe. And the people of these countries lived in enemy-occupied territory for several years. Imagine, though, if victory over the Axis powers of Germany and Japan had not happened, and these people had continued to live in enemy-occupied territory. How long do you think it would have taken? How many generations until this was just the way things were? There was no longer resistance. There was no longer even a recognition, at least not consciously, that anything was wrong. But it was just, we live under this oppressive regime. Two generations, three generations. At some point... The people of these countries would have gone from being prisoners of war, living under a foreign invader, to being just people in these countries and beginning to think and act like their oppressors. Which, in the case of Germany and the Holocaust, would have been horrific. I find alternate histories like this interesting. This is the premise of of a popular show on Amazon. If you know, you know, and if you don't, that's okay. The point, name of the show isn't the point. But the premise of the show is that the Axis powers won World War II. And now everybody's living in these regimes. And in this TV show, there is a video going around that shows the Allies winning the war. And it awakens in the hearts of the people who see it a consciousness that something's not right. That this is not actually the way it's meant to be. That maybe they are in fact prisoners living under a foreign invader. Rather than merely people living in just the way it's always been. I think our text this morning functions similarly to that. Helping us see through the cloud of an assumption that we have that's quite common in our day and age. 
And that's that this is the way things have always been. That the world as it is, is the way it was meant to be. Most of us know that's not true, but we live functionally every day like it is true. Today, in our text, we're going to see Jesus come on the scene and perform an exorcism. That's why I titled this sermon, Exorcism in the Kingdom of God. We're going to see Jesus, the exorcist, come and rescue a prisoner of war. And when he does that, he's going to expose the reality that there are actually two kingdoms, not just one. That it's not just the world and the way things are, but that the world is actually occupied enemy territory and that jesus coming and bringing his kingdom is actually rescuing those who are oppressed as prisoners of war it's going to expose that something is indeed not right it's going to help us think about how to think about the world we live in and the way we function in this kingdom in light of the kingdom of heaven so with that in mind let's read this text The plan is we're going to read this text through and we're going to tell the story, try to understand what Jesus is saying. There's a few things in here that might be confusing. And then we're going to back up and look and say, what is this story teaching us about this idea of a kingdom and the idea that we are indeed living in occupied territory as prisoners of war? Let's read the text now, Matthew 12, verses 22 to 27. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's look at the story first of all and see how this text is put together. We see first in verse 22, all of this that follows is precipitated by Jesus performing an exorcism. Jesus casts out a demon. Jesus' exorcisms, though, were vastly different than the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. And Jesus' exorcism is vastly different than what we might know of exorcism from Hollywood. Most of us today think about casting out demons and we think in terms of what we've maybe seen or heard about in movies. The movie The Exorcist informs most of the modern understanding of what exorcism looks like, unless you grew up in the Catholic Church and were around exorcists and saw what they do. But even what they do looks different than what Jesus did. Back in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, when they cast out a demon, they would have to say the right things and do the right incantations, and they would maybe have some herbs and some things like that. It was very mystical and magical. It was similar to what you would think and how Hollywood portrays exorcisms today. But we've seen Jesus cast out demons. And what does he do? Remember how in Matthew 8, he brought, they brought many who were oppressed by demons. Matthew eight sixteen, And what did he do? He cast them out with a word. Jesus didn't bring a bunch of wild incantations and a bunch of herbs and light the incense and dim the lights and then get the spirit to leave. He just said, go right. Matthew eight, when he goes across to rescue those two demoniacs, what does he do? He says to the spirit, go and it goes into the pigs, right? Jesus casts out demons or exercises by a word. And this is massively different from what the Jewish leaders saw and, and thought exorcisms worked. In verse 22, notice it says, he healed him. This is Jesus casting out the demon. This demon was causing blindness and muteness in this man. And Jesus healed him, restoring his sight and restoring his speech. That was what it looked like for Jesus to cast out a demon. Notice that the demon oppressed man, because he was oppressed by demon, a prisoner in the kingdom of Satan, He could not see rightly and he could not speak rightly until Jesus rescued him. That's going to come important later, right? Because we hear all of those words later about speech. We'll think more about that. The exorcism, though, produces two different reactions in verses 23 and 24. The crowds are amazed and interested. They ask the right question. Could this be the son of David? And what has Matthew told us from the beginning of his gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We are supposed to answer, yes, this is the son of David. And that's what the crowds are starting to ask. And yet notice the Pharisees react very differently. They see this exorcism that doesn't fit the patterns that they've seen. And they conclude it must not be from God. It can only be by the prince of demons that this man is casting out demons notice why they react verse 24 when the pharisees heard it they said it is only by beelzebub the prince of demons when they heard what when they heard the crowd exclaim could this be the son of david they saw people beginning to question because of jesus works the evidence his signs of who he was people begin to question is this actually the one we're waiting for 
And in response, because they are so convinced that this man is from Satan and not from God, they respond with blasphemy. They respond by saying, no, it is because of the power of Beelzebul, which Beelzebul is just another word for Satan. It is not the son of David, but a servant of Beelzebul that is doing this miracle. Jesus, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, knowing both what they're saying, because they said it out loud to the crowds, and knowing what's behind what they're saying, responds in verse 25. He responds by defending himself and his actions and rebuking these Pharisees. He makes a logical defense first. Notice, he doesn't just start by laying into the Pharisees, but he just says, let's pretend what you're saying is true, guys. Think about it for a sec. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then I'm really, like, working against what he's trying to do, right? Like, no house divided against itself will stand, but it rather will be laid waste. A kingdom divided is a kingdom destroyed. So that doesn't make any sense. And then he shifts to their own children who were apparently doing exorcisms as well, right? Like, if I cast out demons by... Beelzebub, who do your offspring cast them out by? Who do your sons cast them out by? This is in verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, if you guys are doing exorcisms too, there's got to be some exorcisms that are by the power of God or this doesn't make sense. And you're condemning yourselves. Jesus is putting their own logic right back in their face and saying, this can't be true. And then he says the opposite, right? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then this is a sign that the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Matthew, we've been talking a ton about the kingdom of heaven. That is the same thing as the kingdom of God. Matthew sometimes uses kingdom of God. Most of the time, he says kingdom of heaven. So it's the same thing we've been talking about. Jesus is saying, if I cast out demons by the Spirit then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And the implication is, he does, and therefore, it is. Then he has this interesting statement in verse 30. It's kind of a transition statement between Jesus defending his actions and then Jesus going on the offensive and preaching to the Pharisees. He says this, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In this statement, Jesus is drawing a firm line in the sand, saying, you are either with me or you are against me. You are either part of this kingdom of heaven that is coming and is here, or you are against it as an enemy. We'll get more. We'll talk more about that later. But I want to I want to look at verses 31 to 37, particularly because it talks about blasphemy and blasphemy is something that is difficult for us to understand, I think. He gives this mini sermon in verses 31 to 37 on blasphemy, which blasphemy itself is just disrespect, slander, speaking something wrongly about someone. Okay, speaking out against God and his works, we might say. But he draws it even more specific when he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? That 
you probably heard about that and you might have been confused by it. And I think it's important to talk about very briefly. If blasphemy is disrespect and slander, then slander, uh, then blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is speaking against the Holy Spirit, which we see in the following verse, right? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Think about how the Pharisees were speaking against the Spirit. What was happening is Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was, heal, uh, was healing this demon, demoniac, was, was casting out the demon from him. And what the Pharisees said is this sign that we've just seen, that's clearly the work of God. No, that's, that's of the devil. They're taking and ascribing the work of God to the devil. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is deliberately misrepresenting God. And that deliberately is important. Because this idea is used sometimes to get us thinking like, okay, I can't use God's name in vain, or that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Or uh, if I say something wrong about who Jesus is, that's blasphemy. I don't, and I want to be careful and I don't want to make a mistake. And that's not what this is talking about. This is more akin to the Old Testament, which had sins of the high hand. Which meant there was a different category for sinning unintentionally. And sinning when you're like, I know this is sin, don't care, going to do it anyway. That's what this is like with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is, I know this is the work of God. Don't care because I don't like it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk about it differently. I'm going to try to convince people that this is not actually God. It is the devil or vice versa, that this is not actually the devil. This is God. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that that cannot be forgiven. If you're worried that you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's a good sign that you haven't. Because this is a deliberate declaration of war on God. And you would not be worried about whether you've done that if you've done that. This is why it cannot be forgiven. Because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit reveals a heart that is hardened to such a point against God that it wants no forgiveness. Right? That's Jesus' whole argument when he's talking about from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. He's saying that words flow out of what's in the heart... And the heart either has good treasure or evil treasure, right? The heart is either a a good tree or a bad tree, and it's going to produce fruit or words that reflect what's there. And so for someone to stand there and know it is the work of God and openly declare war on him reveals a heart that is so hardened that wants no part of forgiveness, even if forgiveness were possible. This is why Jesus says it can't be forgiven. Notice, he says blasphemy Even against himself, speaking against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Right here, right now, people were very confused about who Jesus was. And they said many wrong things. And some of them said really hurtful and hateful things. And yet Jesus extends forgiveness. Many of the Jews who chose to crucify Christ, who cried out in the crowd, crucify him. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, when Peter preached... They responded to the offer of forgiveness in the gospel. But this kind of blasphemy is a declaration of war and cannot be forgiven. Therefore, Jesus says in verses 36 to 37, be careful what you say, for your words matter. Right? We see uh, 36, I tell you on that day, excuse me, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This might sound to us like 
maybe this is teaching just being saved by saying the right things. If, if by your words you're justified and by your words you're condemned, maybe if I just say the right things, if I make the right confession or, 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 or say the sinner's prayer and kind of treat it as a magic, magical, uh, a magical chant, then maybe that will merit salvation for me. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Words matter because they reveal what's in the heart, right? This is why judgment, you will be judged by what you say. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned, because your words reveal what is in your heart, and if your heart is in opposition and enmity with God, you will be condemned. If your heart is drawn in by Christ to the gospel to put your hope in him, then you will be justified, right? You will be saved, not based on your right words, but based on the words which flow from a heart that is in Christ. God sits in judgment and knows not only what we say, but what we think, right? This is why Jesus, in verse 25, says he knew what they were thinking, right? Knowing their thoughts. Not just what they said, but knowing that what they said flowed out of a heart that was evil and wicked. This is why he calls them a brood of vipers. All of these things coalesce, come together, to make, I think, the following point. So I want to talk about what is this story teaching us? What is the point that we're supposed to draw? I think the most important point for us to draw this morning has a couple of implications, but I think the most important point is that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus and his kingdom. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus and his kingdom. In other words, you're either with Jesus or you're against him. If you aren't following Jesus, you're following Satan. On the children's notes, we put it this way. Everyone will either follow Jesus or remain enslaved to sin and the devil. I think we see that in a couple ways. We see that, first of all, in this idea that we are in a war between kingdoms. Notice what the lie, the way the Pharisees blasphemed Jesus. What was the lie they said in verse 24? The big lie in Jesus' day was, by Beelzebul, this man is casting out demons. The big lie was that Jesus was doing exorcisms by the power of the devil. And what's implied in that big lie is that there is a devil and that there are demons and that there is a kingdom of darkness that is opposed to God and his works and his ways. Jesus and the Pharisees have this in common. Both acknowledge the presence of the kingdom of Satan. I think the big lie for us today, the problem that we have today, it's massively prevalent in our culture, and I think it's also prevalent in the church. The big lie is not by Beelzebul Jesus is casting out demons, but who's Beelzebul? The big lie is that we don't believe that there's demons and a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of Satan that reigns in this world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. The big lie is either that we don't believe there's any rival kingdom. This would be the lie of secularism. That there's, that there's secular and then there's the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. Or that there's no clash between rival kingdoms. This would be the lie of pluralism. This idea that there is, sure, there's the kingdom of Satan and there's the church of Satan and they can have their thing. And then there's the church of God and then there's the, 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 the Hindus and, and Islam and all of these other religions. And they all ought to get together and figure out how to get along. 
The big lie is that the kingdom of heaven comes into a neutral world. It doesn't. And as I was preparing this text this week, I was thinking about the ways we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think it's really been highlighted in Matthew until this point. As clearly that the kingdom of heaven does not come into a world that's neutral and empty and then just brings God's goodness. The kingdom of heaven comes as an invasion into the kingdom of darkness. Right? John talks about that, the light coming into the world, piercing the darkness in the world. Christians can be in danger of subtly assuming that Jesus' kingdom comes into a neutral world. I heard this argument recently. It wasn't from a Christian, but I think Christians can use this argument too. That tribal people were doing perfectly fine until the missionaries showed up. Missionaries have made a lot of mistakes. Don't get me wrong. There has been a lot of harm done in the name of Christ. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But the fact is that they were not perfectly fine. They were in darkness. They were enslaved to the kingdom of Satan. Everyone who is not in Christ is enslaved to the kingdom of Satan. Secular is actually a rival kingdom. Think about 2 Corinthians 4.4. It says this. In their case, those who reject God. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blinded, just like the man oppressed by the demon, unable to see the gospel of the glory of Christ. And who did it? The God of this world. The one who reigns in this kingdom. Or think about Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How long? Lifelong. Why? Because they die, and they're in the kingdom of the devil, And the devil keeps them enslaved through fear of death. That is the default position of every single person born into this world. That is secularism. If you are not in the kingdom of heaven, you are enslaved through fear of death to the devil, whether you know it or not. We must realize that, friends. That secular is actually a rival kingdom. There is no neutrality. Because of that... Because we are in a war between kingdoms, therefore there is no neutral ground. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 30. Right? Jesus says again in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That kind of violates our idea of Jesus as the friendly one who says, kind of come to me if you want, it's okay. He does call all to come to him and find rest, but he means it. Like, there is no hope if you do not. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. There is no neutral ground. What does it mean to be with Jesus? I think we see that all over the gospel. When Jesus says to people, follow me, right? That's what it means to be with to Jesus. It's, it, it's to respond to that call. To come to him. Take his yoke upon you. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come find rest in him. 
That's what it means to be with him. And the promise that he gives at the end of the gospel is that he will be with his disciples as they go forth and make disciples in the nations. But everyone who's not with him is not neutral, undecided, third party. Everyone who's not with him is against him. I think this is both a a challenge to the Pharisees, but also a call to the crowds who are interested. Like, can this be the son of David? I'm not sure. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Now's the time to decide. Now's the time to figure it out. There is no neutral ground in this warfare between the kingdoms. Therefore, be with me. That's what Jesus is calling. We are in a war between kingdoms. There is no neutral ground. And what we see in the latter half of this is that our words, how we speak, reveals our heart allegiance. Our words matter because they reveal what's in our heart. And the treasure of our heart determines which kingdom we belong to. That's what it looks like to be with Jesus is not just to, is not just to follow him, but actually to treasure him. In such a way that that flows out of our hearts, right? Out of the abundance of our heart, then our mouth speaks. Our words reveal our heart allegiance and therefore, because there's no neutral ground and because we're either with Jesus or against him, we have to be really careful how we speak. When Jesus says, you'll be judged by what you say. We must speak truthfully and not carelessly. But that brings us to a massive problem. If there's no neutral ground and our words reveal our allegiance and we must speak rightly in order to really be on the right side, the massive problem is that we are unable to speak rightly. We're unable to see and we're unable to speak. See, the the demon-oppressed man at the beginning of this section is actually a parable for everything else that happens in the section. Right? His problem is he is oppressed by a demon. He is in the kingdom of Satan, under the enslavement, blinded by the God of this world, unable to see or speak rightly. The Pharisees, through what they say, reveal that they are in the same boat. They're not maybe crawling on the ground on all fours or drooling all over or something like that. They're not, they're not showing as the same physical symptoms that this demon-oppressed man was showing. But they are just as demon-oppressed. If you x-ray their hearts, you will see the grip of demons on their heart. They're under the influence of the kingdom of Satan, and so their sight is broken and their speech is broken. They're unable to see and therefore unable to speak out of the abundance of a heart in a way that shows that they belong to the kingdom of heaven. If there's only two kingdoms, then everyone not with Jesus is going to speak against him. Everyone not with Jesus is going to be exactly like this demon oppressed man. That is the problem. Apart from Jesus and his rescue, we are all like the demon oppressed man. The problem then trying to help someone or even trying to get help ourselves becomes not just trying to persuade with logic a people that are neutral and generally open to ideas. That's sometimes how we approach engaging with the world or even thinking about our own engagement with Christ. We're kind of, maybe we'll see. I remember my 
my dad uh, saying after he retired, he would read the Bible and see if it's true. Praise God he did and came to the conviction that Christ is king and is serving him and living for him. God is merciful, but that was probably unwise. And we respond all the time like that, thinking that maybe we'll get around to Jesus when we, when we, when we feel like it. When we're having a good day, today's a bad day. The fact is that we are all demon-oppressed without Christ, blind and mute, unable to see and unable to speak rightly. And no amount of logic will get a blind man to see or a mute man to speak. This is the problem, but that problem is good because it reveals the good news of the gospel. Because what did Jesus do? He tells us in this text, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what does this mean? It means that the strong man has been bound because you have to bind him before you can go into his house and plunder his goods. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is this spirit-filled king, empowered by the spirit of God to come and decimate the enemy. And the good news of the gospel is that as he comes, he not only comes as a single force, but he's coming, bringing the whole kingdom of heaven to bear. Bringing this newness to creation. Bringing this restoration that can only come through him. And not only is he the spirit-filled king bringing victoriously this kingdom, but he's here to plunder the house of the devil. And that means what he's here for, friends, is to rescue blind people. He's here to rescue those who cannot speak rightly because their hearts are so consumed with evil, which is every single one of us apart from Christ. Jesus is here to plunder the enemy's kingdom. That is good news. That is tremendous. This is only happening if there is indeed an enemy's kingdom to plunder. Do you see how this connects? If you think the world is generally neutral and Jesus is just adding something on top of it that's kind of good and we like and gives us an eternal destiny, there's not really any depth of good news. But if you believe the world, as God has shown it to be, is indeed under the oppression of the evil one and Jesus is here as a rescuer to plunder the kingdom of the devil, then the gospel is good news. I think, friends, that this has many implications for us, but I want to think of just a couple real briefly. How do we apply this? What does it mean for us? I think, first of all, we have to reject the lie of neutrality. It has to start here. If you think that it is just a generally good world, blank slate, and that Jesus' kingdom is just coming, adding some goodness on top, like the whipped cream on top of an ice cream cone, I don't know why I'd put that on. Like a cherry on top. That's better. And you could do with or without it. Like it won't matter. Right? None of this rest of this stuff will matter. You have to reject the lie that there is neutrality. We live in enemy-occupied territory. And you have to believe that down to your bones. Because it's true. And if you don't, you're foolish. So reject the lie of neutrality. Take the battle seriously. This is the inverse of that, right? This doesn't mean we look for a demon under every rock. Okay? That's the mistake. Getting all, getting all super like, man, I've got to figure out where all them demons are. Right? We don't want to do that. 
But recognize that the things in this world that are broken, that are wrong, that are distorted, that are, that are twisted, that are against the kingdom of God are demonically influenced. Satan wants to destroy God and his works and he's not going to take this invasion laying down. And so take the battle seriously. Do what Paul tells us, which is to put on the full armor of God, recognizing that we do not do battle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. That is reality. That is the truth. We must take it seriously. As Martin Luther puts it, Still our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate and on earth is not his equal. Right? Jesus says he comes to bind the strong man. Not the, not the like, wet noodle devil. Right? Like, no, there's the king of this world has power. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Take the battle seriously. I think a third implication for us is to treat our enemies as prisoners of war. POWs. Treat our enemies as prisoners of war. We must recognize that those in the world that stand against the kingdom of God and stand against us, stand against us not only because their hearts are filled with wickedness, which is true, But they stand against us because they are enslaved. Because they are captured by the enemy. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. And I think it's so helpful for us. 2 Timothy 2.26. He tells Timothy to treat his opponents with gentleness. Why? So that they may perhaps come to their senses. And escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will. They are prisoners of war. This is why Jesus can tell us to love our enemies because they are prisoners bound under Satan and we're seeking to rescue them. The fact that they are prisoners of war in enemy-occupied territory ought to increase our urgency to try to help rescue them, to bring them the good news of the gospel, to point them to Jesus. This means that every one of our family members Every one of our friends, everyone we know and love who doesn't know Jesus, who is not with Jesus, is not neutral on the side trying to... They are against Jesus, whether they know it or not. This doesn't mean that those that are in the world can't do good things and be nice. God is gracious. By common grace, there are many nice people who are enemies of Christ. And by God's grace, there are many people who do wickedness that find forgiveness in christ right and are still struggle with sin and still find forgiveness there is not indicative our actions are not solely indicative of where we are but we need to recognize that it comes down to what's in the heart which is what we see in this text we ought to have increased compassion and an increased urgency and remember that everyone not set free in christ is a prisoner of war Fourthly, we ought to be humbly thankful. The reality is that Jesus' kingdom is composed entirely of rescued prisoners. That's you and me. Like, we don't, we don't come and like, we're, we're part of the, you know, the, the good guys and we're, we're, we, we never were under that prison. We don't know what it's like. No, all of us have been rescued 
from the kingdom of Satan. Like we read in our gospel assurance this morning, God, by his grace, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and put us in the kingdom of his beloved son. That means his kingdom is entirely composed of rescued prisoners. We are liberated in Christ and we ought to be humble then about belonging to the kingdom. And we ought to be thankful about God's work in us. Lastly, and somewhat most importantly, remember who wins, friends. The battle rages, but the war is won. The fact that Jesus comes and can plunder the enemy means the strong man has been bound. The fact that Jesus comes bringing his kingdom, casting out by the Spirit, the devil, means that the kingdom of God has indeed come upon us. That the battle is raging, but the war is won. That victory in Christ is already accomplished. We live in the midst of that already not yet. We live in both enemy-occupied territory, but we live as a liberated people belonging to a new kingdom. Remember that. Remember that it is Christ who wins, and we will do well. I want to close with the words, a few more words from A Mighty Fortress, because I think it's so applicable to this concept. Luther got it. He knew this reality. He says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him, right? What does he say then? He says, that word above all earthly powers... No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. That's Jesus. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Why? His kingdom is forever. That's where we're headed. His kingdom is forever. It has come. It is among us. Jesus has brought it. It is raging against the kingdom of darkness. But the battle is not even close to being contested. It's all over. Jesus has won. He has rescued you and me. And he is rescuing many through our continued testimony and his continued work by his spirit through us. Let's pray and ask for his help and give him thanks. Jesus, these realities are grand, big, life-altering, and yet we confess they are hard for us to hold on to in the day-to-day. Lord Jesus, you know how constantly our culture disciples us to think contrary to this. Would you help us? Would you preserve us? Would you help us remember that the kingdoms of this world are fading away, but your kingdom is forever? Would you help us have an urgency that goes down deep into our souls to see those we love in bondage be rescued? And would you fill us with tremendous gratitude as we consider our own rescue? 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.